deep in the recesses of the mind, in every human being, there is a glimmer of belief that when we die, conscious existence does not cease. There is a tug, a pull toward an unending nature of life. Ancient civilizations have gone into great lengths to ensure safe passage of their leaders into the afterlife. Egyptians have built as many as 118 enormous pyramids out in the middle of the desert sands in order to protect the bodies of their pharaohs as they make their journey into the afterlife. Treasures, weapons, food stores, clothing, luxury items, and even boats have all been placed in the depths of these pyramids to be used by the pharaoh in the life beyond. In 1974, one of the most amazing archaeological discoveries of all time was made in Xi'an, China. Thousands of clay soldiers, each uniquely crafted and beautifully painted, crowd the elaborate mausoleum of the first emperor of China. It is believed that this army of clay soldiers were escorts of the emperor into the afterlife. All of the major world religions have some form of life beyond physical life. Whether it is reincarnation, nirvana, limbo, purgatory, paradise, heaven or hell, all point to some existence after the grave. This belief may be there, buried deep within the conscious mind, but most times it is drowned out by the conflicting arguments of the rational mind. The rational mind sees life strictly through the empirical lens. When it comes to death and the afterlife, the furthest extent science can go is to the last heartbeat, to the last impulse of involuntary movement, to the last signal of brain activity. That's the end. Nothing further to see, to witness, to experimentally test. And this is where most people are. Standing at the end of the arguments of the rational mind, staring off into the dark abyss of an afterlife, almost making out the perceptible lines of something, but not sure if it's real or their mind is simply playing tricks on them. This is where AJ stood, firmly planted in rational thinking. If there was a God, he wound up the universe eons ago and simply walked away. No personal God, no life after death, no final judgment, no heaven, and no hell. To believe any other way was foolish superstition. That is until one fateful sleepless night, when the haunting voice of a dying man pushed him from the calloused skeptic to a convinced servant. I'm Ronnie Brown, and this is Forgotten. AJ was, in short, a preacher's kid. The children of Christian ministers have a reputation of oftentimes being a complete opposite of their parents later in life. But that was not the case with AJ, at least at the beginning. AJ was born in Malden, Massachusetts, to loving yet devoted Christian parents. His father was a congregational minister who came up during the Great Awakening. Although he loved his son, A.J. Sr. was a very stern and strict man intending to his home. He was a godly man, 
described as a man of, quote, inflexible integrity and uniform consistency of Christian character, end quote. This unbending moral character caused the pastor and his family great turmoil during A.J.'s life. Because of the pervasive nature of liberalism and false teaching, A.J. Sr. had gone through a series of unsuccessful pastorates and church splits until he finally ended up in a conservative congregation in Plymouth, Massachusetts. As he grew up in these years of transition, A.J. saw his father go through so much and yet never compromised. He viewed his father with awe and deep respect. A.J. was a promising student. While his father was away on business, A.J.'s mother, Abigail, wanted to surprise her husband by teaching her son to read while he was away. She was successful in doing so, and when A.J.'s father returned, he was met by a three-year-old boy reading a chapter from his beloved Bible. His father's delight in his ability fueled an insatiable desire for learning. A.J. read every book that he could, literature, novels, everything in his father's library. By the time he was 10, he had learned the basics of Greek and Latin and was highly developed in mathematics. It was at some point during this time that his father told him, quote, You are a very bright boy, and I expect you to become a great man. End quote. His father saw the promise in the sharp mind of his young son and aspired great things for him. He himself had only been a poor pastor of small churches all of his life. His greatest desire was that his son achieve greater success than he. Time and time again, he reaffirmed his vision for his son by telling him that he would one day be a great man. But A.J.'s vision of greatness differed vastly from his father's. He saw his destiny as a public speaker or an author or a politician, some position that would win him admiration and fame. He knew this vision was different from that of his father's aspirations. He deeply respected his father and wanted nothing more than to please him. But how could he do both? How could he fulfill his father's Christian vision for his future and be a great man of renown at the same time? One night, while laying in bed sick, his young mind wrestled with these desires. He seemed to hear a voice say in his mind, quote, Not unto us, Not unto us, but to thy name be the glory. This echo from the Psalms tried to guide his thinking. The only lasting fame, the only eternal glory that would outlast the grave would be God's glory. The rest would fade into insignificance. Not unto us, not unto us, but to thy name be the glory rang through his mind over and over. He suddenly sat up in his bed, stunned by God's dealings with his heart. Although he would remember this unusual moment for the rest of his life, he once again was taken up with his own personal pursuit of fame and notoriety. By the time A.J. was 16 years old, he was extraordinarily proficient in Latin, Greek, mathematics, astronomy, logic, public speaking, and moral philosophy. His early education was so solid that when he did enter college, he did so at the sophomore level rather than the freshman. The only question is where would he attend college? His father was a graduate of Yale University, but it was not the choice for his son because of its distance from their home in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Harvard University was much closer, but it was out of the question because it was already showing signs of theological liberalism. 
Instead, A.J.'s father sent him to Rhode Island College in Providence, knowing it would be a theologically sound and Bible-believing school. Not long after A.J. arrived, the college became known as Brown University. He felt that this would be the safest place to send the young, pliable, yet exceptional mind of his son. Just as he had done earlier in his life, A.J. was a model student with exceptional gifts. His professors took note of him immediately, and by the end of his first year of school, the president of the college sent a letter to his father calling A.J., quote, a very amiable and promising son, end quote. As you can imagine, his father glowed with pride at how his son had distinguished himself. It would only be a matter of time before he would be called into the ministry and be the great pastor and minister that he had always envisioned. But what he didn't know, what he couldn't know, is that the path of A.J.'s life was taking a decidedly different direction. Although he was known on campus as a minister's son, A.J.'s life bore very little interest in the two weekly prayer meetings at the college. His friends and companions were those known to be young men of the school who also had no interest in the things of God. Not long after arriving at Brown, A.J. soon became friends with a young man by the name of Jacob Eames. He was a student one year older than A.J. Eames was gifted as well, having a quick wit and a place of popularity around campus. He was also a staunch deist, not a Christian. The deists rejected the Bible completely. They believed that there was a God, but that that God is not involved with mankind at all. Deists rejected Jesus Christ as the Son of God and did not believe in a heaven or a hell or the blood atonement of Christ. It was not long before he and A.J. became fast friends. Eames had a powerful influence on A.J., so much so that he was soon convinced by Eames to throw off the beliefs taught to him from his father and to join him in his enlightened philosophy. The strict theological beliefs of A.J.'s pastor father had no room for such error. A.J. Sr. despised liberalism, Unitarianism, and Universalism and felt that deism was the worst of all. If he had known the influences upon his beloved son, he would have immediately removed him from the university. But he had no clue that the foundation that he had poured into his son all of his life was being quickly eroded by fellow students. Although A.J. was uneasy with rejecting his father's instruction, his father's religion, his father's faith, Eames was there to reassure him that he was now free to pursue the fame and notoriety which he had always dreamed. He could be the author, the playwright, the actor that he had long since desired. Unwilling to disappoint his mother and father, whenever he would return home between semesters, he would play the role of the dutiful son, attending church and family prayers, all the while harboring a guilt of his hypocrisy and his rejection of his father's faith. At the end of his collegiate education, A.J. graduated top of his class, he was awarded valedictorian and was given the honor to address the graduating class. In attendance was his mother and father beaming with pride. Once home again, anguish began to build in his heart. Week after week, going through religious activities that had become so foreign to him, it seemed as though all the dreams that he had shared with his friends Jacob Eames were slipping away. Finally, he had had enough. It was time to throw off his parents' rule and to tell them his plans. He told them 
that he would leave for New York City in the coming weeks. When there, he would meet with people in the theatrical profession and apply his gifts to writing plays for the stage. His parents were incensed, heartbroken, and confused all in one moment. They considered New York City a modern Sodom and Gomorrah. His father, who was sure that he was bound for seminary in the coming year, pleaded with his son to study to become a minister. It was then that A.J. exploded with the ugly truth that he had so tried to hide. Their God was not his God. He was no longer a believer in the Bible. He did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. His father tried to reason with him, but to no avail. His mother burst into tears, asking him over and over, how could you do this to your mother? For days after this moment, he could hear his mother in the back rooms of his home, weeping and praying for her lost son. After six days, he could take no more. On a horse given to him from his father as part of his inheritance, he set out for New York City. But upon his arrival, the rose-colored glasses that tended the city from afar vanished from view. It was found to be a ruthless city that took no note of his valedictorian status. It held no outstretched arms to receive him. In the employment as a playwright that was to make him famous and rich was nowhere to be found. He was there for only a matter of weeks. Unwilling to go home, yet longing for a familiar face, he turned his horse towards Sheffield to stay with his uncle Ephraim. While there, he crossed paths with another young man, very different from the ones he had ran with in college. The young man was a devoted believer in Jesus Christ. A.J. was stunned by the young man, who was strong in his Christian convictions, yet without being harsh or judgmental. After a brief stay, A.J. decided to continue west. As the sun was setting one evening, he stopped at an inn to spend the night. He applied to the clerk for a room. The inn was nearly full. There was only one room remaining. The innkeeper had been hesitant to rent the bed because in the adjoining room was a deathly sick young man. He was afraid that the noise would disrupt the occupant next door. A.J. assured the man that a few noises in the room next door would not keep him from a good night's sleep. And after a hearty plate of food, the landlord showed him to the room. It wasn't long before the lamps were dimmed and A.J. was in bed awaiting sleep. A sleep that seemed to be elusive. Although he assured the clerk that the noises in the next room would be no bother, they were. All through the night, he could hear footsteps of doctors and attendants that were constantly coming in and out of the room. He could hear low, hushed voices in the hall debating what else they could do. The most haunting of all were the coughs and the gasps for air coming through the wall, the groans of agony and pain that no nurse could quench. Just beyond that wall lay a man about to face death. Was this man prepared for death? Was he prepared for death? He thought of his father, fully assured at departing from this world. But he didn't believe what his father believed. To him, death was simply a door into an empty pit, a place of darkness, a ceased conscious state 
nothing more. But what if he was wrong? What if there were a heaven, or worse yet, a hell that lay just beyond death? He suddenly shook himself and laughed off his stray thoughts as tired, superstitious ramblings. What would his college friends think if they were to see him? Jacob Eames would laugh him to scorn. After hours, the battle within him subsided into slumber. At last, sunlight streamed through the windows, and with it, an anxious night of frightening thoughts was simply wiped clean by a fresh day. He packed his belongings and readied himself to continue his journey. Arriving downstairs to settle the bill, A.J. asked about the sickly man next door. He is dead, was the reply. Dead, A.J. said. Yes, he's gone, poor fellow. The doctor said that he probably would not survive the night, said the landlord. A.J. asked, Do you know who he was? Oh, yes. It was a young man from Providence College, a very fine fellow. His name was uh, Eames, Jacob Eames. The man that lay next door, gasping and moaning in agony, dying minute by minute, was his beloved college friend. A.J. was in shock. It is as though his heart stopped. Years later, he would write that he had no idea what transpired over the next few hours. He was consumed with the reality of death. His mind was occupied with the single thought of eternal destiny. If his friend was right, then there was nothing to worry about. But if he was wrong, then Eames had just entered a world of eternal torment with no chance of being saved. He was forever lost. The word lost was continually ringing in his ears. It was as if he was given a glance into the world beyond. In that moment, He knew the Bible to be true, that the faith of his father was the only assurance when crossing into death. What had happened in that country inn, the taking of his dearest friend and guide from the next bed, simply could not be pure coincidence. He immediately turned his horse toward home. What had started out to be a bright journey into his own freedom and independence had turned into the most soul-shattering experience of his life. He was not yet born again. He had not yet believed on Christ, but he was under deep conviction of soul, and it would only be a matter of time. Upon arrival home, his father would send him in the coming months to Andover Theological Seminary where he hoped his son would be able to work all this out. By December 2nd, a day which he would never forget, he was converted and made a complete and total dedication of himself and his life to God. From that moment on, A.J. was never the same. His dreams of fame, riches, and success melted away. His one true desire was now, quote, how can I best Please, God. End quote. This young prodigal 
would be known to the world as the first American missionary, Adoniram Judson. The young man that once lusted for fame and prosperity yielded to serve his God in the jungles of Southeast Asia. From 1813 to 1845, a full 33 years, Adoniram Judson stayed on the mission field without returning to his native land. In that time, he endured unimaginable sufferings for Jesus Christ. While on the mission field in the jungle climate of Burma, with all of its disease and poverty, Judson lost two wives and ten children. The field of his labor was difficult as well. After four years of trying to reach the people of Burma, Judson wrote home to say, quote, I have this day been visited by the first inquirer after religion that I have seen in Burma, end quote. It was after another two more years that he baptized his first convert. And at the end of nearly 10 years of ministry, there were only 18 national believers. During the Anglo-Burmese War, Judson was in prison suspected of being a spy. For 17 months, he suffered countless tortures. His feet were fettered, and at night, a long horizontal bamboo pole was lowered and passed between the fettered legs and hoisted up until only the shoulder and heads of the prisoners rested on the ground. They were exposed to grotesque conditions in prison. Vermin and filth were everywhere. They were served rotting food and grew weak and sickly. During the imprisonment, he along with others were forced on an eight-mile march from one prison to another on scorching hot sand and gravel. The swarming mosquitoes landing on their open wounds nearly drove them to madness. Adoniram's feet were so lacerated that he had to be carried by the end of the journey. He apparently even contemplated taking his own life. There are many aspects and accomplishments concerning his years as a missionary that could be and should be discussed. He translated the Bible into the Burmese language, a task that took him some 27 years. He compiled a Burmese dictionary that is still in use and is the basis of their language today. Although the evangelism was hard, there was left in the wake of his ministry a thriving Christian community. But the overarching message from the life of Adoniram Judson is that God is able to take the haunting suspicion that there is indeed life beyond the grave and connect it to the limits of the rational mind. He does this through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For it is He that satisfies the suspicion by telling us that He is the way, the truth, and the life. By telling us that in His Father's house there are many mansions and that one day He will take us to reside with Him there. But He also puts to rest the rational mind. For on the third day, after cruelly dying on the cross, He was physically and bodily raised from the dead. He showed Himself alive to as many as 500 people at one time. The proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ are irrefutable. The conversion 
and subsequent life of Adoniram Judson prove that God can take the most skeptic, the most wandering prodigal, and make them into something entirely different. Because if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. Forgotten is written and produced by me, Ronnie Brown. You can find out more about this show at ForgottenPodcast.com. And as always, thanks for listening.